Bibles, you can turn with me to Philippians chapter number one. Philippians chapter number one. And as you're turning there, too often I forget, if you have your worship guide and it's your first time here, we would love to connect with you or just have a record of your visit. If you'd like to connect with us, there's a QR code at the bottom of your worship guide here. You can just scan that with your phone. It'll take you to a form. You can fill out your name and email, phone number, and we'll be sure to follow up with you, connect with you in the days ahead. It's great to have my family. This represents uh, the entire Stanley clan uh, in, in the house today. I got my sister from North Carolina. Her husband, Craig, serves as a pastor at Great Hope Baptist Church, and uh, we've got all their kids. They've got four, three girls and a boy, uh, so my nieces and nephews in the house. It's good to see them, and uh, I don't know if you guys knew this, but I guess I guess Kurt Christians and I are somewhat loosely related then by marriage, which is, I don't know if I'd admit to that or not, but Kurt has been coming to Liberty Hills for quite some time now. That's Craig's brother. So connect those dots, go give him a hard time and uh, introduce yourself to them. But it's good to have them worshiping with us today. It's not often that we've had an opportunity to do that. But it's good to have them here today. Philippians 1, verse 27 through 30. That's going to be our text that we're going to read uh, this morning. Before we do that, let's just open in a word of prayer. I don't know about you, but oftentimes there are just some of those Sundays that are just a challenge. I happen to still have, no, whether it's getting here, getting kids out the door, I happen to still have no idea where my truck keys are at, even at this moment. Uh, so I had to have my wife come pick me up and interrupt uh, worship practice. And so it's just been one of, those, one of those Sunday mornings. So let's just, for my benefit and maybe for yours as well, let's just quiet our hearts and our minds, ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over us, that even in the seemingly insignificant moments of life that can be frustrating and you're not really quite sure why they're happening, you are there. And I just pray this morning that you would speak through your word, that you would use the preaching of the word of God to expose, to equip, and to encourage us in our walk with you. I pray that the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, would go out with great power this morning, that you would do a work that I cannot do, it would stir our hearts, convict us of sin. And Father, I pray that you would give us the grace to walk in obedience as we confess and forsake as we have an opportunity and even just a few moments to partake of the Lord's table, to come together as, as a church, as a body of Christ, and as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and to fellowship in the gospel, the commonality that we have in Christ, the salvation that he freely offers. So I pray that you would just do a great work this morning. I even pray as we 
as Christians seek to walk as light in this world that we live in is there's much focus on court rulings and decisions that have been made politically. Father, there's going to be a great opportunity for us as your church to stand in the gap, to raise not a banner of political affiliation, but to raise a banner of good news that Jesus has come. He's defeated sin. He's defeated death. There can be hope in a relationship with your son. So, Father, I pray that you would give us discernment. You would give us wisdom as we seek to engage, as we seek to love, we seek to walk as you walked on this earth. So I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Philippians chapter number one. Verses 27 through 30, the title of our message this morning is going to be a gospel recalibration, a gospel recalibration, and as Andy indicated, we are going to be skipping forward a few verses, uh, it's, just, it's just how it worked, it does work, 27 through 30, and then uh, Pastor Andy is going to come back next week, and he's going to fill in the gap of where uh, Pastor David ended. He's going to pick up at verse number 19 and, and go down through verse number 26. Uh, but uh, hopefully the, the kind of skipping around here in chapter 1 doesn't uh, dissuade you or distract you from the core message of this first chapter as Paul wraps up his, his opening comments and as he really gets down now and transitioning into the meat of his teaching of this letter to the church at Philippi. And really, what's, what's Paul's hope here? His, his hope is that uh, this update that he's going to give the church, not only about his own life and his own experiences, his own persecution, and in hopes that that would encourage the church, but he's also hopeful that he would get an update from this church, that they too would be faithful in their walk with the Lord that they would be faithful to the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we see this, this shift right here at verse number 27, this shift where Paul is, is now taking his readers to this idea of a gospel recalibration. I don't know if you've ever had to recalibrate something before, um, but really uh, a recalibration is, is what? It's, it's just identifying through observation that something's not really working quite right. Whatever it might be, whether it's um, a tool, whether it's um, an appliance, whether it's uh, some other item that you're, you're trying to use. Uh, in my case, I'm kind of a lawn guy, and I, I always have to recalibrate my spreader, right? Uh, my, my fertilizer spreader. And uh, it's important because if you put too much fertilizer down, too much of a good thing is not always good, and by way of fertilizer, you put too much down, you're gonna, you're gonna burn your lawn out, right? You put too much seed down, and that seed is actually gonna choke each other out, and so you have to have just the right amount of a certain thing for it to have its intended purpose and impact. And so a recalibration is simply observing that it's not working as it's intended. You're identifying what part is not working right, and then you Seek to fix it. Now, I don't always have the skills to do that. 
unfortunately. YouTube is my friend. How many uh, YouTube uh, handyman do we have out there? Any of you? Okay, every, every man raised their hand. All right, so you guys know what I'm saying. Uh, just, just pop it into YouTube and you can get detailed instructions. That's phenomenal. Uh, it's, it's a great development. And uh, just recently here, the last couple of days, I've been working with my brother-in-law, Craig. We're putting down, and uh, I like to say that I'm laminate flooring for my mom in her living room. And uh, I like to say that I, I did the project along with my brother-in-law, but really, I was just kind of an assistant and, and helper. And there was a couple moments when a certain tool wasn't working quite right or it wasn't doing the job as it was intended. And my, my brother-in-law here, Craig, he had the wisdom and the understanding and the knowledge to be able to say, hey, this tool isn't gonna work. We need to get some other tool. Or, hey, you know what? This, uh, this nailer isn't working as it's intended, so let's do this trick of the trade that apparently only he knew and, and that got it working right. So, so an ideal of recalibration is simply having the self-awareness and the understanding that it's not working as intended. And we gotta fix it, why? Because ultimately only when something is working as it's designed can it maximize the positive impact of that tool, of that piece of technology, of that resource, whatever you're trying to use. And so in our walk with the Lord, in our relationship with him, as Christ followers, our goal, the chief end of man is to do what? Glorify him, to maximize his glory in and through our life. And so how we live, how we walk in this world, it matters. Why? Because by that, we can maximize the glory of God so others that look on and observe our life and observe the gospel, observe the church, they can get a proper and right picture of the gospel, of who Jesus Christ is. So we have to be careful. We have to be understanding of the importance of living rightly in this world. This is why Paul says in verse number 27, you can follow with me as I read verse number one, or excuse me, chapter one, verse number 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with anything by your opponents, side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I don't know about you, but staying recalibrated in this world that we live in, staying recalibrated to the gospel, that's a challenge. There's so many even good things that, that pull and tug on our attention. Different systems of, of thought and philosophy, things of this world, less of the flesh, the less of the eyes, the pride of life, our own sin nature. It pulls us away to where we stop working and, and being as we should be in this world. And so we need a what? We need a gospel recalibration. And this is exactly what Paul is laying out for his readers here in his final opening comments of chapter number one. Do you remember that old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing? 
As I was preparing for this message, this song came to mind, and specifically those well-known phrases, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You feel that tug? You ever feel prone to wander, prone to leave, entangled by the cares of this world and sin, trials, difficulties, persecution, discouragement becomes dismay? We feel like, hey, is it even worth it? The church at Philippi needed to be reminded of the gospel and oh, how my heart, how my heart needs a steady intake of a gospel. So a constant recalibration of the gospel when, it, when the cares of this world, the heaviness of my sin, the brokenness around me, the chaos in our current events, when we see protest and we see animosity and we see fighting from this side against the other, it's overwhelming sometimes to consider how to engage and when to engage. But friends, when we walk as Jesus walked, when we love as Jesus loved, there can be purpose, there can be clarity. It can be meaning as we seek to do what? To fulfill that great commission to go and make disciples. The beauty of all this uncertainty is that we've already covered Philippians 1.6. Good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You know, we're going to kind of fumble through sometimes life. We're going to struggle going to fail even sometimes, but ultimately, are you thankful that Jesus will complete that which he has begun? And so the big idea of our text this morning is this, because our identity as Christians is in Jesus Christ, we can and should live our lives in a way that reflects the person and work of Jesus in the gospel. I'll read that one more time if you're taking notes. Because our identity as Christians is in Jesus Christ, we can and should live our lives in a way that reflects the person and work of Jesus in the gospel. So this morning, we're just going to look at three simple points in an effort to recalibrate our lives back to the gospel, in an effort to stay on mission. The first point is this, the call to gospel centrality. We're going to look at the call to gospel centrality. We see this in verse number 27, the first half of that verse, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So verse number 27, we find this first imperative. This is the first imperative that we see in uh, this letter to the church at Philippi in verse number, uh, verse number 27. And that imperative is preceded by the first word in that verse, number 27, which is what? It's only. So before we jump into this imperative and its implications, I want to focus in on that first word. And you say, hey, we get what only means, right? How much can there be squeezed out of one word? But hold on, let's, let's focus in on this, this word. It's significant, it's helpful, and it's impactful when we consider its implications on our lives only. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In the original Greek, this word only could be translated as whatever happens. Or it also has the idea that Paul is declaring just one thing. 
He's taking all the excuses off the table, no matter what your circumstances may be. What has come before this passage by way of context? Pastor David has taken us through the unlikely blessings of persecution. Did I get the title right, Pastor David? I did, all right. That's, oh man, all right, unexpected. The unexpected blessings of persecution. I was pulling that from the archives, so give me a break, but... There's blessings in persecutions there. There's, there's trials and difficulty come knocking at the door of our life. There are blessings there. There's, there's purpose. There's meaning. Why? Because God is sovereign over us. His sovereignty is pointing to the reality that he is, has complete control and authority over all things, over all people at all times. God is never caught off guard. He is never surprised with what, what's going on in this world. And everything that he has allowed to happen is working towards his redemptive plan in this world. And so he truly is sovereign. And so when we look at this world, this word only, and we consider whatever circumstances are present, just one thing Paul is stating at all times and in all circumstances, do what? Here's our imperative. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's a singularity of focus. Do you struggle with that sometimes in your Christian life? Maybe you fall into the trap of thinking that you've got to check all the boxes. You've got to do some good things. You've got to earn some extra grace from the Lord by towing the line or, or really stacking up some accolades or some things that you've accomplished. This is not what the gospel has in mind. What Paul is focusing our attention on is to focus less on what we do and focus on who Christ is. So only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's a singularity of focus on the centrality of the gospel. There will never be a situation there will never be a trump card that's presented in life that can be played that would exempt the believer from living their lives in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. So let's unpack this imperative a bit more. Let your manner of life. And the originalist gives us some good insights here. This could literally be translated, as citizens live. As citizens Live. I, know, I love the nuances here that, that that original language pulls out of, of citizenship. Paul focuses his reader's attention on their identity in the gospel. Their identity as citizens of heaven that Paul will, will later talk about in, in chapter number 3, verse number 20. But he's calling us, he's admonishing his readers to be citizens or to discharge your obligations as citizens, to live in a manner worthy. So it's a parallel passage with the leader of the letter, this passage right here, 27 through 30. It's a parallel passage with the end of chapter number three going into the first part of chapter number four. It's gonna be a bookend theme and focus on citizenship. You know Jesus Christ, you've received his free gift of salvation by grace through faith. And ultimately that salvation should have an impact on how we live. It should cause us to walk 
and to be like and to love like the one who has saved us. So be who God has called you to be. So why would Paul choose this idea of citizenship as this hinge imperative that really the rest of his teaching and the content that will go on later through this letter, why, why would he choose citizenship as the hinge that everything else would hang on in this book? Well, he knows his audience. That's always a good thing to do when you're, when you're preaching or teaching to a group of people. If we break down this verb, we find that the, that the root word here is the noun polis, which simply means city. This word would carry the idea that political duties and responsibilities should be practiced as a good citizen of that city. The church at Philippi would know this well. Philippi would be a city or a colony of Rome. They were Roman citizens. They would be proud of this reality that they are of Rome and that they have that protection and, and those rights that would come along with Roman citizenship. So Paul is leaning into this idea of citizenship as a way to connect their obligations and duties that they have fulfilled as a Roman citizen to understand and, and to correlate that into their relationship with the Lord. You're a follower of Christ. Walk in a manner worthy of that. Don't walk like your former self as we read in Ephesians uh, this morning in our opening call to worship. But such were some of you. We certainly know that. But Paul is, is calling them and reminding these readers to only let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this is the only time this word is used in all of Paul's writings. Uses it once, right here in verse number 27. It's also interesting to note that some, some commentators are going to indicate that Paul would use this word as many of his uh, readers would have been overly proud of their Roman citizenship. Even to a higher degree than their citizenship in Christ. What an appropriate topic and comment in the day that we live in, where Christian nationalism is running rampant, where we are clinging to our rights and, and the things that we feel like we are deserved or owed by way of what? Our national citizenship as an American. Oftentimes, we can be prone to wander and pursue that American dream and all that this, uh, this nation has to offer at the expense of what? Our testimony and our walk with the Lord. Our witness and our fulfillment of that great commission takes a backseat to our own pursuit of happiness and the things that we can gain in this world. So as I said before, Paul focuses our attention on this, and he will revisit this topic. In chapter three, verse number 27, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul always had this incredible ability to keep an eternal focus in mind. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul said, this parallels our verse here in, in 27 only. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Our citizenship, citizenship is in the gospel. We are not of this world. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. Do you remember those simple, basic, elementary realities of being a Christian, a Christ follower? Let there be no mistake about it. For Paul, there was only one thing worth living and dying for. That was the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pastor Andy will cover that in detail next week. But at the end of the day, Paul understood it. That the gospel of Christ that provides a sustaining motive, not out of obligation or pretense, but out of love and appreciation Realizing that the grace that we've been given in Christ, the reconciliation that we've been given in Christ, we have an opportunity to offer to others. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. There was nothing we could do for it. But that gospel, that unmerited favor that we've been given in Jesus Christ, Paul was so overwhelmed with those realities that he lived in light of it every second of his day. So much so that he had this singularity in mind here, only this one thing at all times, no matter what the circumstances are, Paul says, live worthy of the gospel. And in order to live with that reality in mind, don't we have to value and appreciate something to that degree? If we're going to do only one thing, don't we have to be convinced that that one thing is worth that type of focus and effort? In reality, I wonder, is the gospel that for you? There's a value proposition at stake here. Ultimately, when we don't live our lives only in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, it typically means that we're living for something else other than the gospel. Priorities. Time. Our own desires, ambitions, goals, busyness. So many things could be plugged in here that, that take us away from the singularity of focus of every single day we wake up. We are mindful that people are dying and going to hell. And God has chosen us to be ambassadors, his representatives to do what? To herald the message that Jesus saves. There's hope. He's defeated death. We don't have to live in our sin anymore. We don't have to go our own way. We don't have to lean on our own understanding. We can lay it at the foot of the cross. There's a loving, merciful, gracious Savior that is ready to give us a free gift of salvation. And by God's grace, he draws us to himself and he gives us the grace to place our faith our confidence, our hope in his finished work, knowing that we have nothing to offer. So Paul understood this reality that Christ and the gospel, it was the only motive for, for developing this healthy, grace-enabled pattern for part from the grace of God. They are worthless. They are filthy racks. If you're attempting to do things in your own strength, 
for your own accolades, for your own purposes, for your own spotlight, for your own pat on the back. Friends, they're filthy rags, Isaiah tells us. But only when God's grace works in and through us. And we are focused on the glory of God. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. If our motive, our end desire, our own hope or aim is anything other than God be glorified in and through my life. Be glorified in my living. Be glorified in my dying. Be glorified in everything in between. If our hope and our aim is anything other than the glory of God, it's worthless. And so there's a value proposition at stake here. Is the gospel in your life something that's worth or valuable enough for you to give that type of singular focus towards? To give that radical abandonment towards everything else? Just as Jesus called the disciples, he said, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. As he called others through his earthly ministry to do what? To repent and believe the gospel. As he heralded his message of why he came, he came to do what? Seek and to save the lost, to give his life a ransom for many. We're going to see Jesus Christ embody this mindset in chapter number two in a few verses, in a few weeks to come. He is our example in emptying, emptying himself giving up the, the prerogatives of heaven, humbling himself to do what? Take on flesh and become obedient even to the point of death, death even on a cross. And it's through that humiliation of Christ that ultimately God the Father exalted his son and has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul points his readers to the object and focus of their lives. And to be clear, it's not a list of things to do. It's not a list of things not to do. He doesn't point them to a catalog of chores, but rather he points them to the Christ of the gospel. So not only do we see, number one, a call to gospel centrality. This was everything for Paul. His singular focus was the gospel. But secondly, We're going to look at the commitment to gospel unity, the commitment to gospel unity. So Paul is going to go on here at the end of verse number 27, that second half, he says, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. A commitment to gospel unity. So Paul here is gonna go on to cast some vision for what the visible fruit of this type of living, what it would look like. What does it look like to actually live as citizens of the gospel? Paul's going to be clear. He's going to give some examples here. He's going to cast a picture here of what living as citizens of the gospel will produce. What will it produce? It will produce a supernatural move of gospel unity. 
be clear, and we've talked about this before, even in recent days as we went through our more than membership series, going through our church covenant and advocating for uh, more meaningful uh, ideas and concepts of, of church membership. This is why we talk about church membership in terms of a covenant, because it's, it's a commitment to one another in a reciprocal manner that we are going to be side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel. There's some great nuances here, but living as citizens of the gospel, it's going to produce a supernatural move of gospel unity. And and let's be clear, Paul isn't advocating for external conformity. He's, He's not talking about that list of do's and don'ts. He's not talking about us all looking alike and and even acting the same and even making the same Christian living type of decisions. Paul writes about those things in in some other letters that he wrote to other churches. There was was Christian liberty. We've we've talked about that in in recent months. But what Paul is claiming is that when a group of individuals, when they come together with that singular of focus, and they have a desire and a heart to live their lives in light of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that there is going to be a depth of unity that comes among that body of believers. The context of the body of Christ, when we individually say yes to Paul's imperative to only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ and everything else that we could live our lives worthy of, that falls along the wayside. We let go of it. We give it to the Lord. Some of it may even be sinful. We confess it. We repent of it. We forsake it. And we say, hey, we're going to have a gospel recalibration at this moment. The only thing that matters in my life is what? Living worthy of the gospel. When individuals commit to that and they come together in the context of the body of Christ, there can be a supernatural move of Holy Spirit grace-enabled unity that will make an incredible impact in the community that they're in. And friends, I hope that we can get a God-sized vision for that in our church. A few months into this building, a few months in a new context, a few months now into this neighborhood, I wonder what kind of impact are we making other than seeing a new sign outside that, oh, that's that's a different church. Oh, that's a new church has, has moved into the building. Other than observation, I wonder, can, can this neighborhood feel the love of Jesus? Can they hear and see the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through how we live and how we interact and how they observe and look on to this church? And there's a lot at stake when we consider this call and this imperative to only live our life in a manner worthy of the gospel. So Paul transitions here in a way that would reiterate the ongoing nature of the previous imperative. He says, so that. So that why? What what is Paul getting here? So that whether I come and see or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
So essentially, Paul is saying no matter what and in all circumstances, keep on pursuing the gospel and keep on living in light of the gospel. So Paul desires to hear of them, that they have this testimony, this this reputation about them. They are known for what? The gospel. We used to have a, a tagline, a phrase, we have since, uh, since kind of changed it in, into something, uh, I think, a little bit more meaningful. But nonetheless, I, I love this little phrase and tagline that we had. We said that Liberty Hills exists to love and live the gospel. Some of you may have been here long enough where you can remember that phrase. Uh, now our purpose statement is uh, Liberty, Liberty Hills Bible Church exists to make mature followers of Christ to the glory of God. Both great statements, right? But this, this old school OG tagline of Liberty Hills, of loving and living the gospel. And that that speaks, I think, to the heart of what Paul had in mind here in verses 27 through 30. His challenge to the church was that whether he's there or whether he's not, that he should hear that they are first doing what? Standing firm in one spirit. Now, there's some debate about this, what this spirit means here. This one spirit, it could in its most basic form refer to just a raw sense of of unity. They just have one spirit about them. That they're in agreement, they're of of one mind type of meaning. And there's a strong case that Paul, even beyond that, is admonishing the church to stand firm in one spirit, as in referring to standing firm in the Holy Spirit. Philippians chapter number two, one through two, gives us some insight into this as well. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, referring directly to the Holy Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Ephesians 4, another letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. He says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? A somewhat parallel passage to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This is the unity between the Holy Spirit and the body of believers, unity of the Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul is challenging them to have a unity in the Spirit. This is a reminder, ultimately, that we can't live in this way in our own strength. I can't just pick myself up by my bootstraps and try harder. I can't do more. I can't earn my way to this destination. I will never be able to live my life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ in my own strength. 
This is a work that the Holy Spirit must enable. As I submit my life to the gospel and to the authority of the Holy Spirit in my life, as I am sensitive to the calling and the urging of the Lord to walk in a way that's worthy of the gospel, so that I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit. So how is the church at Philippi to do this? The question could be extended even to us at Liberty Hills Bible Church, even in our context, in our day. How can we be heard of and be known by as a church that's doing what? Standing firm in one spirit. Paul gives two additional participles. He says, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's the first participle, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And the second one is there in verse 28, not frightened. This would be our our second participle. So the first one is this singular-minded approach, right? You see that in, in verse number 28 here or excuse me, verse number 27, so that whether I come and see you are absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, with one mind. Paul understands the difficulty of staying on track and staying on mission and staying focused. This is why, this is why I, I chose the title of what a gospel recalibration because you don't just recalibrate something once. This is an ongoing effort that we must engage in, that we have to have this self-awareness of doing what? Constantly being of this one mind, doing this one thing only. Let your manner of life be lived worthy of the gospel. So it's this one-mindedness that we have that Paul is calling us to here. This allows us to do what? to stand firm and to not be frightened in anything by our opponents. So we are called first then to strive side by side. I don't know about you, but I have this word picture in my mind when I read that phrase of linking literally arm in arm for the sake of the gospel. Striving side by side. I can remember as a play Red Rover anymore. You guys remember this game? Uh, we, you'd, you'd stand on, on one side with your buddies and you'd link arm in arm and then you'd have another line across from you. I don't know how far away it was. It felt like, you know, a football field length away to really get some momentum going. And, and you'd link arm in arm, right? You, got, you guys, how many of you played this? You remember this? Okay. Young kids, we're gonna do this after church. You know, with, no, I'm kidding. Maybe, uh, we'll see. Uh, Red Rover, right? You're linked up arm in arm. Right and, and you were ready to stand firm. Why? Because there was Johnny on the other side of the line, big old burly kid, you know, maybe he went through the sixth grade a few years and, you know, was, was older, bigger, stronger than everybody else. And, and here Johnny was coming, just barreling down the line. And, you know, me, a scrawny little skinny kid, hard to believe that's what I was at one point, right? Uh, scrawny little kid, I'm linked arm in arm with my buddies. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm about to die right here. 
I'm literally about to lose my life, just be plowed over by Johnny. But what are you doing? You're standing firm. You're bracing yourself. You're aware of what's coming. You're conscious that, hey, you know what? The only way we're gonna withstand this bull rush is that if we stand firm and we strive side by side and we lock arms and we're focused and we're intent and we're ready to absorb that blow. This is a reality, spiritual warfare. Paul is reminding them to stand firm. Why? Because they must stand firm. Because there are what? Opponents, Paul calls out here. There's gonna be an onslaught of of persecution. There's gonna be discouragement. There's gonna be challenging and difficult days that were to come. And so Paul challenges them to stand firm. How do we do that? We strive side by side. We strive side by side. This occurs, this this one phrase occurs uh, in the book of Philippians, chapter four, verse number three, where, where Paul's coworkers have been described as laboring side by side in the gospel. This is the only other place that that word is is used here. So it's a unique description that Paul wants to give his readers of what their unity and depth of unity should look like. This word striving has the idea of toiling together with someone in a struggle. We're coming alongside as that band of brothers, somebody has been wounded and shot on the field of battle, and what are we doing? No man left behind, we're going to their aid. We're yelling medic. We're doing everything that we can to to help and sustain and support. Striving side by side, toiling together with someone in a struggle, has the idea of laboring alongside of another. We're called to strive and to do it side by side. Friends, in the body of Christ, we're not called to niceties and pleasantries, but friends, we're called to be in the trenches of life with one another. We're called to be in the foxhold. We're called to come alongside our brother and sister in Christ to minister to and to be ministered to, to minister and to be ministered to to know and to be known. So then what does Paul have in mind here? Striving side by side requires active participation. You can't strive side by side with somebody that's on the bench. We've gotta be on the playing field. We've gotta know our role. We gotta know the playbook. We gotta know the spiritual warfare. Just like that Red Rover game, we've, we've got to be focused and intent. We can't be sleeping on the job and picking dandelions on the field because Johnny's coming. And he's going to blow through the line. We've got to stand firm and we've got to strive side by side. What are we to strive side by side in What are we striving side by side for? For the faith of the gospel. For the faith of the gospel. Our effort, our focus, our determination. This type of singular focus, it's it's positioned towards. And that effort and that, uh, that exertion has an object, a destination. It's the gospel. It's for the faith of 
the gospel. I mentioned this slightly before, but we don't strive side by side for the American dream. We don't strive side by side for our political ideology, for our first and second amendment rights. I'm thankful for them. Paul has called us to be citizens first of heaven. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Strive, pursue, put effort towards, come alongside another, toil with someone else in a struggle for what end or for what purpose, the faith of the gospel. This is what matters. So friends, be thankful for and engage in. I'm thankful for those that, that have, let me be clear, I'm extremely thankful for them. I'm thankful for those that, that have served and ultimately have given their life to protect those rights so that we could come and worship freely. What a blessing and encouragement that is. Be involved, vote, stand up for the poor and needy in our society. We have a great opportunity of that. Roe v. Wade struck down. What's the perception? Conservatives are taking away women's rights. They're taking away women's health care. We're, we're, not, we're not helping those in crisis situations. So friends, I wonder, is there an opportunity for us to live out that singular focus of the gospel in new tangible ways? To step out of our comfort zone. To engage in our, our local crisis pregnancy center. There's new things that we can be engaged in, friends. We have to show the love of Jesus to the marginalized, to the outcast, to those struggling that don't have a voice, to care for the widows and the orphans. This is pure religion. Let's engage in these ways. Let the voices that we give, the things that are heard from our mouth, let it be gospel-saturated, nothing else. Everything else is worthless. Let it be the gospel, friends. Let that be the bridge that we build. Let that be the avenue for uh, engaging in a new relationship. So friends, I wonder if our neighbors see and hear us striving more for the politics of our day than they see and hear us striving for the faith of the gospel, we desperately need a gospel recalibration. Paul is calling them to strive for the progress of the gospel, and that happens as our faith in the gospel is strengthened. So friends, more than ever, what do we need? More than ever, we need to be and see with the simple message of the gospel. Repent and believe. Come and see. We need to be ready to share our own story of, of how Jesus saved us. The simple testimony of what? I once was blind, but, but now I see. Let me introduce you to the person and work of Jesus Christ that changed my life. When's the last time we did that, friends? Only let your manner of life be worthy of that gospel. Let it be said of us that we are standing firm, striving side by side for nothing else than the faith of the gospel. We need to do this in light of the second 
participle, not frightened in anything by your opponents. How can we not be frightened by our opponents? We remember what Paul anchored his readers on as we went through these realities of suffering and persecution the last few weeks, as Pastor Andy is going to remind us next week in verse number 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The Lord will save us. We have the hope of eternal life. What can man do unto us but take this life? But in that taking of our life, would that not be gain? So don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. There's going to be those that are in opposition to the gospel. They rejected Jesus, the one who came to give his life a ransom for many. We're promised in John 17 because they rejected him, they will reject also us. So we can expect and be sure that there will be difficult and challenging times if we have not yet experienced them. But we have this hope in this singularity of focus. We have this hope in the good news of the gospel that we don't need to be frightened by anything, in anything, by our opponents. Paul says this is a sign of their destruction. They certainly don't see it as such. But salvation is nothing we have earned. It is nothing that we deserve. Our salvation, rather than our destruction, is solely from the gracious and loving hand of God. Are you thankful for that this morning? That he saved us? That we have hope? And friends, we have an opportunity to offer that hope to even our opponents, to love our enemies, to point them to the personal work of Jesus. So a call to gospel centrality, a commitment to gospel unity, and final point this morning is the confidence of gospel fruit. Verses 29 and 30, they remind us of the providence and sovereignty of God in salvation. And Paul now gives further clarity as to what the from God at the end of verse 28 is referring to. Here Paul calls out that faith and persecution are the fruit of God's grace in our lives. They should be viewed as almost a gift from the Lord. But certainly we know our, our faith in the Lord is a gift. That is, that is fruit that only comes from the Lord. What about persecution? This is a tough one. Let's look at verses 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, this is a tough one, but also suffer for his sake. In our American brand of Christianity, we'll sign up for the first part of that, right? We'll sign up for some believing in Jesus. That easy believism, that health, wealth, prosperity, sign me up. I can believe in that. What does Paul say? You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So faith and persecution 
are gifts from the Lord to help us do what? Keep that singularity of focus. There's something about our faith in the midst of persecution that is strengthened. And everything else that we held as a crutch or that we clung to in that moment, it all is exposed as worthless and empty. And man, we see the hope that we have in Christ in the midst of persecution, do we not? When we truly begin to suffer for his sake, our faith grows. And as our faith grows, it has this reciprocal, act, uh, uh, this reciprocal response where we go to the beginning of verse 27 where we want to be more focused. We want to only let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this now has become full circle. He starts with the imperative. He gives us the teaching. He shows us how we can do it. Man, he gives us this beautiful picture of the fruit that is produced when we suffer. That way and what happens, our faith will grow and friends, we will suffer for his sake. We will suffer for his sake. Verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Faith and persecution are the fruit of God's grace in our lives. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Ephesians 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For the sake of Christ that you should not only believe, it's been granted to you. For the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. So faith in the gospel is a fruit. Faith in the gospel is a fruit that, that really ultimately can be produced and initiated by God. It is sustained by God and it is completed by God as Philippians 1, verse number six reminds us. So in God's perfect plan, Paul reminds us that we aren't just called to believe, but this second fruit or gift is the unlikely or unexpected blessings of persecution that Pastor Dave just brought us through. These are what we are called to, to suffer for his sake. This is how the gospel goes forward at great power. Do you remember 1 Peter chapter 4? Uh, I hate to read it again, but this is such an, a, an impactful verse in light of suffering persecution for the sake of Christ. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. And so far as you share Christ's, if you're in, 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is why we can count it all joy. As we went through uh, our, our series and through the book of James, we can count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. They come to test you, or excuse me, when they meet trials of various kinds because we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And we're called to let steadfastness have its full effect. They may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So through suffering, through opposition, through persecution, we see fruit and we see a gift and we see a blessing that's produced through what? Only letting our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. When we go through a Holy Spirit-led, grace-enabled gospel recalibration, our faith will grow and we can be sure that persecution and suffering for the name of Christ could be close behind. So no matter what the Lord in his sovereign plan may see fit to allow into our life, he calls us to only let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What about you this morning? So we've gone through these few verses and we considered these impactful imperatives, these participles, these actions, these clear commands that Paul is laying out as he goes now into this, this bulk of his letter. I wonder, do you this morning need a gospel recalibration? Are you focused on the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as his person and his work is his love and his actions on your mind, on your lips, how you interact with others, how you respond to others in the home, outside the home, in the workplace. Is the, is the gospel going forward in and through your life on a daily basis to your kids, to your spouse, to your neighbors? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Are you unashamedly proclaiming the gospel. Paul would have us to remember these realities this morning. First, the call to gospel centrality, a commitment to gospel unity, and the confidence of gospel fruit. We can be confident that our faith will grow and that the gospel will go forward in great and unique ways, even through our suffering. So our big idea was this, if you'll remember with me, because our identity as Christians is in Jesus Christ, we can and should live our lives in a way that reflects the person and work of Jesus in the gospel. Would you bow your head, close your eyes this morning. As the worship team comes, uh, or excuse me, as Christina comes, take a few moments, Paris, for communion. I just want us to take a few moments of reflection to consider